Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the ASIN podcast series. I'm Nick James, and together with Kristen Hassan, we'll be leading the ASIN's new podcast series on nationalism and ethnicity studies. This month, we're going to talk about the current wave of populism and the greater discussion of nationalism and differing approaches towards analyzing it. We will tease out a debate between cultural and economic-centered approaches by asking whether there are ethnocultural underpinnings to the phenomenon or if it's rooted in economic and political causes. If it has its roots in one or the other, why then does it often express itself with both xenophobia and economic protectionism? In general, this series will tackle questions like those just posed by interviewing top academics in the field. We want to create and foster a collaborative and accessible environment for scholars and any listeners interested to come together and learn a bit about our topics every month. If you have any questions, comments, or requests, please don't hesitate to email us at podcast at or reach us on Twitter at ASIN Events. This week, Nick will be interviewing ASIN's own Eric Kaufman and Daphne Helikiopoulou. Daphne is Associate Professor of Comparative Politics at the University of Reading, and her work has focused on far-right parties and nationalism. She'll be talking to us about the drivers of support for nationalist parties and how new radical parties have been able to build themselves off political and economic insecurities. Eric is Professor of Politics at Birkbeck College, University of London, and his work has focused on nationalism, demography, and the politics of population change. He'll be providing us with a rich perspective on the relationship between ethnocultural insecurity and populist, nationalist attitudes. You can find them on Twitter at Helikiapalu, Daphne's surname, or EPKAUFM, that's E-P-K-A-U-F-M. Approaches to the study of populism and nationalism vary wildly. Scholars have characterized populism as an ideology, as a strategy, as a discourse, and as a political logic, as well as myriad other uh, categorization schemes. And nationalism studies also as, uh, face similar typological squabbles from primordialism to modernism. So when populism and nationalism are intertwined, our analyses and approaches can easily become compounded, confused, and disparate. Daphne and Eric are going to help us untangle much of this web during our conversation, and we'll discuss different explanations and analyses for why we're seeing such an increased wave of populism and a positive trend of far-right identification. Their divergent but complementary views will come together to help us understand the current political climate with regards to immigration, demographic change, and who gets included in the nation. I brought you both here today to facilitate a much-needed discussion on what this quote-unquote new nationalism is, how it relates to the current uptick of nativist populism, and on what or to what extent this new nationalism is even new. You both bring many different strengths to the table, and I hope we can draw them out in a, a bit in our small discussion. That being said, I want you to feel free to respond to each other's uh, answers and to open a dialogue there. So I'm first going to ask you about your work, your publications, and then we can get into some real substance on the topic. After that, we will discuss how you got to where you are today and, and maybe any advice you might have for younger scholars. So to dive into it, I'd like, to, I'd like you both to um, describe your current work and publications, why they're relevant, and how they fit into the existing literature and field. Okay, so my, my, my research broadly can be summarized as uh, research on far-right parties, and that is both demand side and supply side. So when I say demand side, I mean I research um, the causes um, at the societal level, so why people vote for the far-right, who votes for the far-right, um, and how this has changed across time, and how this varies across different countries. And I focus mainly on, on, on European Union countries and the UK, soon not to be a European Union country. Um, and then on the supply side, I focus on the parties themselves, uh, again, across Europe. So their narratives, the, the ways that their programmatic agendas have changed and how they use nationalism to put forward their ideas and uh, attract voters. Eric. Yeah, so I've had, uh, uh, ever since my master's dissertation with Anthony Smith in 1993-94. I've had an interest in dominant ethnic groups and in majority ethnicity. And so that's kind of the, 
perspective I'm, I'm bringing to bear on the question of right-wing populism. So um, and that goes back to my earlier work uh, in, the, in the PhD in the book on, on um, the, the WASPs in the United States and, and the, um, well, you might call it the right-wing populism of its day, which was in the period 1890 to 1925 in response mm -hmm. to immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe of Catholics and Jews. Um, and so what I'm mainly doing now is looking at you know, a number of different things. I mean, one is to look at survey data. I look, I, I'm now, I use both some kind of historical and, and, but also quantitative methodology, and I don't see any, any uh, incompatibility there as long as both are committed to a kind of cause and effect style, variable centered, uh, explanatory approach. Um, and so in the surveys, um, you know, so, so I did, I've done a number of these. I mean, one of them really looked at um, the Brexit vote and support for Trump. So this was during the primaries in the US but after the Brexit vote. And what you could see essentially is that people who um, had a more either what's known as authoritarian or uh, order-seeking kind of psychological makeup or who thought generally that things were better in the past, a kind of more conservative orientation, were much more likely to um, to be Brexit voters or to, to support Trump. Whereas in comparison, their income levels, their class was either not important at all or, or played only a minor role. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of one of the findings. And then I've more recently looked at uh, using some, some what are called survey experiments where you essentially take 1,500 people in a survey, you divide them into three groups of 500, and then one group reads one paragraph and another group reads another one. Um, and, and, or, or you have other kinds of setups. And basically what, what I found is that when it comes to preferences over immigration levels, the ethnocultural considerations, again, are sort of more dominant than the considerations of whether immigrants are skilled or unskilled, for example. So that's a relatively new... Um, I think finding, given that the predominant view was that it was sort of had to do with skill mainly. Um, so yeah, these are just some of the areas. I'm, I'm also writing a lot. I had written a book actually, which is coming out in October with Penguin, so that is going to be a long book, um, but it involves a lot of these themes. All right, wonderful. So there's clearly a bit of difference here. So I hope we can capitalize on that and open up a dialogue. And, and I'll start by gearing some questions towards Daphne. So Daphne, could you talk about how radical or extreme right nationalist parties have a, appealed to ideology in lieu of biology in order to win over mainstream voters who would otherwise not vote for them? Okay, um, can I, before I do that, can yeah. I add one of the differences sure. actually yeah. that I think would be, would be uh, important based on what Eric says. Before we delve into the different types of yeah. parties, um, Let's focus a second on the different causes. I think what's prominent at the moment is to juxtapose the culture versus yeah. the economy. Yeah. And I think Eric and I complement each other nicely or even disagree yeah. with each other nicely because I think Eric sort of focuses more on the cultural side, as he just said, whereas my work is increasingly focused more on the economic side. Um, and increasingly I am concluding, I'm coming to the conclusion that I think it is a two two-dimensional form of contestation. I think both economy and culture matter. Um, and so in a recent paper that I that I published with my colleague Tim Blanders, which also won an American Political Science Association Best Paper Award, we found that while indicators such as unemployment in themselves don't seem to be significant, actually, if you look at particular labor market and welfare state policies, um, then they do play a mediating role. So simply put, um, unemployment matters less in countries where um, unemployment benefits are more generous or in countries where employment protection legislation is more protective. Mm -hmm. So I think there is an economic story there, but I also agree that there is a cultural story there. And um, this brings us nicely to the parties because mm -hmm. I think demand, in my understanding, is there anyway. There are people with cultural grievances everywhere, as there is people with economic grievances everywhere. But there is a question about when those grievances translate into voting for a particular political party. And that is where supply comes in, becomes important, mm -hmm. right? So this is, in my opinion, where the difference between extreme versus what I call 
radical. And by that I mean, I, 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 I tend to use this umbrella far right instead of populist right, or mm. when we can discuss that later, to sort of group parties that have, that, as I call it, use the nationalism narrative to justify all their policies. So they propose nationalist solutions to various policy areas that include immigration, but also welfare, economy, um, foreign policy, anything you can think of. But these parties can have very different relationship to democracy and very different relationship to fascism. And this mm -hmm. is where it becomes useful to distinguish between the extreme variants, those who are completely opposed to democracy and have fascist roots and are violent, versus what I call the radical right, those which try to distance themselves from fascism and adopt, say, uh, ideological rather than biological justifications of national belonging. Mm -hmm. And I think across Europe, except some exceptions like Greece, the Golden Dawn, um, or Jobbik in Hungary, it is usually the radical right variants that are more successful. And I think that is because by using a civic type of nationalist justification of why we should exclude people, uh, that makes these parties appear more legitimate and therefore easier to vote. It also makes mainstream parties, um, it makes it easier for mainstream parties to adopt mm -hmm. these radical right policies yeah. because they themselves won't appear as extreme or not legitimate. So how do nationalist narratives fit into this and what effect do these narratives have on policy building after they've been introduced into the political discourse? In, in, my, in my research, I have distinguished between the use of ethnic nationalism, mm -hmm. which is something that extreme right parties do. So, for example, the Golden Dawn will say we're indiscriminately anti-immigrant. If you don't have Greek blood and if you're not of Greek origin, then you're you should be excluded de facto from the nation. You just cannot belong. There's an element of superiority there. If you have Greek blood, you're by default superior and therefore you should belong. And so what the so-called préférence nationale is, is premised on things that people are born with, mm -hmm. ethnic nationalism, versus civic nationalism, which is what the radical right parties use, which is a, a narrative that stresses ideology. So we don't exclude people because they are of a different race or of a different colour, because that would be racist, we don't mm -hmm. do that. We exclude people because they're ideology is contradictory to our liberal democratic values. Mm -hmm. So that's why they're very anti-Islamic, for example. They say these intolerant people are coming in our liberal democracies and will erode our liberal democratic values with their intolerance. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a narrative that can be uh, applied much easier also by more mainstream parties. And this is where the, the line becomes really blurred between some of what we call the borderline cases. Mm -hmm. So your article, Breaching the Social Contract, brilliantly analyzes the conditions in which Golden Dawn built itself. You say that extreme right parties or radical right parties are most likely to see rises in membership when economic crises turn into crises of democratic representation. Could you elaborate on the concept of the crisis of democratic uh, representation as it relates to extreme right voting? Yes. So just to, to, to clarify and specify, this article is about extreme right parties in particular. So in, in, in this article with my colleague Sofia Vasilopoulou, we're not actually looking at the Western uh, European radical right parties such as the Pevever or, you know, the Swiss People's Party or, um, or the Scandinavian parties. We are looking in particular at extreme right parties and we're trying to find out why this type of right-wing extremism arose in Greece, which had a severe economic crisis, but did not arise in countries such as Portugal and Spain, which also had a severe economic crisis and therefore had conditions ripe enough mm -hmm. for the extreme right to, um, to, to emerge. So our, our argument, sort of actually drawing from uh, a lot of literature on Latin America, on populism and on, on, on democratic representation, we're saying that it's not economic crisis per se that creates the rise of the extreme right, mm -hmm. but rather this is more likely to happen when an economic crisis translates into an overall crisis of the nation state, into an overall crisis of democracy. So we do a, a very classic method of difference mm -hmm. between the different, the three different countries. And we 
essentially eliminate the factors that they have in common. So things like economic crisis, they share. Things like uh, unemployment, more or less, they share. Mm -hmm. But what is different between the, the three countries is the extent to which the economic crisis became translated into an enormous crisis of management. So um, issues like trust in institutions or trust in the democratic system or even levels of corruption, these are very different mm -hmm. across the three countries. So Greece was a case more likely for right-wing extremism precisely because it had a system that was very weak institutionally mm -hmm. because of these problems that I've outlined. Now, this has broader implications because it means that right-wing extremism is not the most likely outcome when an economic crisis takes place. Actually, it's the least likely outcome, mm -hmm. and it needs to be accompanied by a severe crisis of democracy. So, Eric, how does immigration and migration shape political attitudes among those who are seemingly most affected by them? And what experiences can we generalize on from maybe locales and neighborhoods who are experiencing fast-paced change in their demographic makeup? Yeah, so, so this, this topic of political demography, politics of population change, is, is another of, of the hats that I wear and that I'm interested in. It includes also other phenomena such as uh, you know, the youth bulge and, and other things. But uh, yeah, this is where you get a change in the composition of the population due to migration. And generally, historically, we've seen that when you get uh, large-scale migration of groups that are uh, distinct from the ethnic core of, of a society, then you tend to get anti-immigration politics. And you saw that in the U.S. case, in particular in the 1840s, 50s, and also in the 1890s through to the 1920s or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't actually think that what we're seeing now is, is anything surprising in a way. I mean, the foreign-born share in Europe is sort of where the U.S. foreign-born share was in 1910, for example, in the midst of the anti-immigration issue that they had there. Um, so what happens essentially, I think, is the, the immigration causes a dissonance between the ethnic majority and what it considers to be its nation-state. And, and, and that lack of congruence is sort of what's, what's, I think, behind the nationalist response. And in a way, that lack of congruence between culture and politics is generally what's behind all, or not all, but many nationalist responses, whether we think of secession or reunification nationalism. It's mm -hmm. all about what's a perceived mismatch between the political roof and the cultural unit. Mm -hmm. Sure. So what what is the relationship between kind of cross-cutting identities like the white working class and nativist populism? How, how does that play out? Well, first of all, the term nativism is, is, is an American term, which mm -hmm. I think is not so academically useful. I would rather use the term dominant ethnic okay. nationalism, although I even would refine it even more than that. But essentially, um, the white working class, okay, the, the issue about the working class is is more, I think, to do with psychology. No, I mean, I, I know Daphne will disagree, but I think it's less to do with interests and more to do with the psychology in which ascribed identities or ascribed forms of identity are more important attachment to place and routine um, and, and to ethnicity because this is their most prestigious identity as opposed to somebody who is say um, you know a, a world traveling business person who, who's making lots of money and whose identity is wrapped up in their credentials and their lifestyle it's a very different form of you know so their their high prestige identity is precisely not going to be the ascribed ones mm -hmm. the achieved ones so that kind of explains I think why the the working class tends to be more reticent about um, immigration and radical cultural change. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that would be my main explanation there. One thing I would say, though, is that, I mean, if we look at the aggregate data on um, foreign-born share, there's a paper that, that, that came out that showed that there was sort of anywhere between a 50 and 97% correlation between proportion foreign-born within a country over time, particularly over time, not so much when you're comparing over country to country in, in a snapshot, but if you take it over time, the mm -hmm. increase in populist right party vote in Western Europe is very tied, I think, to that increase in foreign-born share, increase in migration. So as, as demographics change then to, from 
where ethnic minorities potentially become ethnic majorities. How do you imagine protectionist or nativist policies faring? Well, yeah, so this, this is, I think, the driver. So this is essentially mm. what I think is driving people who are order-seeking or conservative psychologically in the presence of migration and ethnic change respond with, um, you know, there are supply factors, absolutely. Um, but in mo- now in most West European countries, we've got uh, populist parties. And once they get established, they tend to have a growth trajectory if migration continues. Uh, and we see some very, very close linkages between migration rates and salience of immigration as when people are asked, what's the most important issue in the country? Mm-hmm. Migration. And then that is very linked to support for populist right. So I would say that what we're looking at, it depends. It depends what happens with migration. I mean, if the migration rate continues at the level it's been since 2013 in Europe, then I would predict the populist right will continue to set the agenda. It's not to say they will continue to increase their vote share. The center-right is increasingly successfully taking over, or at least adopting uh, the populist rights policies on immigration, which I do think will suck a lot of the vitality out of the populist right, as long as the centre-right is able to deliver on their migration uh, agendas, which Cameron, David Cameron, for example, was not able to in Britain, so he was punished, UKIP gets the votes back again. Mm-hmm. Does diversity, or rather changes in diversity, drive value-based polarization among majority groups? In a word, yes. I mean, you know, there is, the Muslim factor is a bit of a, a, a somewhat of a force multiplier there in the sense that, and we see in the Front National in France, and to some extent in Austria, that some kind of liberal type of types of voter are, are drawn to the populist right over their views, over, over their defense of liberalism, as, as Daphne was saying. So there is a, a segment of the populist right vote that is that kind of liberal group, but I think the majority are, are essentially seeking to preserve and protect their ethnicity and their ethnic boundaries. Um, I, I would see that as the main driver. Can I sure, sure. Come yeah. in here? Oh, please, please. <laughs> I think it, you can you can because yeah. I could answer there, and I think we can have. Yeah. So I I did want to say that. You know, obviously, I do I do agree that immigration plays a role. It would be, it, it, I would be you know I I would be mm-hmm. exaggerating saying it doesn't, but what I do think is interesting and we need to take into account is if we look at the electoral support for these parties across time. Um, I will be talking about that more at the ASIN conference. Also, I published a blog just yesterday, in fact, oh. for the Political Quarterly that has a nice graph which you can say, actually, what we see is that these parties start increasing their share in the mid-1980s. It goes up, and then somewhere in the early 2000s, it slumps, it goes down, and then it stays down for a bit, and then it goes up again. Now, I think that is an interesting trajectory. It shows that the phenomenon is not linear. So if if concerns for migration, what I mean, if, if migration is, is increasing, but these parties are not, linear, then there is something else at play that we I do think is, is important, which brings us to how new is it. And if, if we look specifically at the parties, this is very much the case precisely for the Western European country, uh, parties that we're talking about. So if you look at the FPO, um, I'll accept it wasn't exactly the same party and it's changed in its rhetoric, but if you actually look at it, it's done very, very well in the legislative elections in the late 1990s, then it goes down and then it goes up again to similar mm-hmm. levels. So the line is... Is, is curved. It's not. It's not linear. Um, so I I do think that there are ways of understanding why the migration problem is a problem at some time and not another time. If you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's all. And, and there are supply side factors. And, and I guess I would focus more on on you know the lot. You know, when when you lose a charismatic leader like Hyder, um, you know, that's going to be a blow because the whole party image and brand is a invested in a leader or Farage. So, so, you know, in a way, these parties are volatile. But I, I guess what I'm trying to, and I'm mainly speaking about Western Europe and, and not, not so much Eastern or, or even Southern Europe or Southeast, but there is, even through that volatility, if you take an average across, say, the, the, the populist parties and you look at what's happened, say, I mean, since 2013, you can see the migration wave, and, and there's a paper by James Dennison and his colleagues that found that in nine of ten 
West European countries. We've, there is um, a strong relationship between migra net migration levels and the salience of immigration. So it's not as though the attitudes, people who are pro-immigration aren't going to change their attitudes when there's more immigration. But the people who are anti, that becomes their number one issue. That's what happens. And I think here as well, it would be interesting to see, I agree with that, mm. but I think it would be really interesting to look a little bit behind the reasons why people have anti-immigration attitudes. And there is a, a, a big literature in political economy that also focuses at, you know, the sort of labour market determinants of anti-immigrant attitudes. So I don't think it's, it's, it's fair to measure anti-immigration simply as a cultural thing. It's not <laughs> only, uh, we, we tend to say immigration and then lump it in sort of the you know the cultural category but immigration is not necessarily a cultural mm -hmm. issue there are reasons and if if we look at for example I've, I've, i'm working on another paper right now with with tim blanders um where we look at european social survey data uh, from the seventh wave 2014 uh, where they also have a specific immigration module and there is a lot of information there about both the economic drivers of of anti-immigration attitudes mm -hmm. and the cultural drivers and the picture is just not as clear-cut as you know, we might want it. We might want it to be initially, and certainly, cultural anti-immigration immigration attitudes, they are there and they are significant, absolutely. But so are economic, and in fact, there are more people who have economic concerns about immigration in our sample than there are people who have cultural concerns. So I think it's a more mixed picture. Sure. So, does the relative salience of immigration? Um, rise along with relative rises in nationalism? And if it does, which which is causing which? Well, okay, I do think it's important to bring nationalism in because mm. a lot of the literature that Daphne and I read or have, have been working on is, is somewhat free of the nationalism terminology. So I do think it's important to, to, to bring this in. Um, because I think it's absolutely central. Um, and, and where I'd say it connects is, it connects in a number of different ways. I mean, fundamentally in nationalism theory, there, you know, one theory essentially argues that, to put it crudely, political and economic, say, instrumental elites or perhaps interest-seeking um, masses are what behind, drives this phenomenon. And another theory argues that kind of ethno symbols, myths, memories, etc., are the driver, and then you may get political movements sort of coming second. And and, and I'm I'm more partial to that second kind of explanation, but I'm certainly open to being convinced otherwise. But I think that ethno symbolic theory um, can, can I think speak a lot to a lot of what we're seeing that that people are attached to. Um, particular ethno symbols and particular boundary markers and that have been essentially reproduced over time and that 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 sort of form their kind of vernacular understanding of the nation and I go with a more kind of bottom-up type mm -hmm. approach here so that then collides with um, you have immigration and you have the official discourse which is often very inclusive saying you know we're defined by British values we're open to anybody we can have immigration that, I think, then collides with the more vernacular bottom-up understanding, which is more ethno-symbolically informed, and it's the, it's the kind of dissonance between those two. So I actually think, in some ways, the civic nationalism that has been tried in Western Europe has not succeeded. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about the French Republican model or British values or, you know, uh, this has not helped to assuage the anxieties of, of that, the voting base. And I think there are real reasons for that. Because I think their, their nationalism, it's not ethnic in the sense that, I mean, I agree with Daphne, there is a small group of people for whom you know you can't be a Greek a citizen if you're not ethnically Greek, I mean, and so on. But I think that's actually the minority. I think what, but I also think that most people are not civic nationalists who believe that as long as you you know, take your citizenship oath and, and speak the language that you're, you're, that that's the end of the issue. I mean, I think that there's a lot of people who would be, and this is again something I'm going to bring up in the conference, uh, I think we need a new term because I think the nationalism literature, this ethnic civic term was developed at a time when many of, of the countries, uh, particularly in Western Europe, were ethnically homogenous, had low foreign-born share. Their main concerns were native-born minorities, 
or secessionists. I mean, or empires. You know, that was the context in which nationalism theory emerged. Uh, and this term ethnic nationalism really was developed for new nations that were trying to secede from empires. It's not really that, it's not as, as, as useful a concept as mm -hmm. it needs to be. So I, I have this term ethno-traditional nationalism, which essentially is, is arguing that, okay, people are attached to a certain ethnic composition of their country, which they see as traditional doesn't mean that minorities can't be citizens or members of the nation, but there's a kind of ethnic character to the nation, uh, sorry, an ethnic component to the nation of which the majority group is the largest component, and if that erodes, they feel a sense of loss. So it's, it's not that they want to exclude people who aren't from the core ethnic group from citizenship, but it's that they feel a sense of loss as the ethnic majority shrinks. So I think that is largely where a lot of people are. And that's kind of the problem more that we're looking at. Yeah. Do you have anything to reply to? Or? Yeah, sure. I think that I fully agree with Eric that nationalism is very, very important. And I do agree that it's interesting that while the far right nationalism is so linked, actually there's very little literature that systematizes this relationship. But I have a totally opposite view to, to <laughs> Eric. And I, I, I think this phenomenon, I think this phenomenon is very much more top down. And mm -hmm. so I would apply a more of a modernist understanding of nationalism to to um, to explain this phenomenon. As I said, I think when it comes to demand, this is not very new. We, we could see changes. Every society changes. Every society evolves. Every society has grievances. You can't find any society without grievances. My question is, why do these grievances translate into a particular political development under specific circumstances in a particular, at a particular uh, period of time? And so I think that nationalism is very clearly in the supply. One thing we have seen is, and perhaps contrary to a lot of a lot of people who say that, oh look, uh, parties have been talking about immigration, people have been talking about immigration, but the the, the centre right hasn't been doing anything. There's a lot of research that shows that in fact the the far right has had a contagion effect on other parties, not only centre right parties, but even even Labour parties, even even centre left parties for the past 25 years. So. The, what has definitely happened is that there has been an increase of nationalism across the party system and political parties are using nationalist justifications for their platforms increasingly across the board. And I think this is where we need to focus uh, to, to understand mm -hmm. why this phenomenon is taking place. The supply side and how nationalism is increasing on the supply side as a top-down phenomenon. Mm -hmm. um. There's a lot of contemporary research that, in terms of populism and nationalism, culture matters more than economics, clearly. Uh, how far can we agree with this premise, and can we dismiss economics entirely at all, a little bit? How far can we go? Well, I mean, we'll obviously have very different answers on this. I mean, I, I'm not opposed to the argument that says economics is a, an upstream cause, because I think that the global economy and liberal market economies are the main demand force that is pulling labor into Western countries. So in that sense, absolutely, and remittances and the whole global economy is certainly behind all this. But I just think when we get into approximate cause, uh, at the level of the individual, it is much more of a, of a cultural, psychological response, which isn't to say there isn't some economic, and we did see with the Brexit vote that there is, a, uh, there's no question that poor white British people, even when you control for all the cultural, psychological stuff, are more likely to have voted leave than wealthy people. So there's no question that that exists. Now, one of the things that I've just in some work I've been doing with uh, Thomas Leeper and Simon Hicks, and one of the things that does come out is that you have a group of people who are kind of anti-immigration, but who and who are better off, and their self-interest overrides their desire for lower numbers. So they're more they're willing to trade off reductions in immigration for for economic prosperity, and and remain is is a better option economically. So that, but um, but in general, I would say, you know, my view on this is 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 largely cultural. In fact, you can actually measure it in some of these surveys. I mean, the dis difference between even even a a, a question such as strict or or permissive child rearing attitudes will be will give you about four times more 
predictive power than somebody's income in terms of the Brexit vote or Trump assessment or so on. So I think, I guess for, for my money, I guess I think it is largely a... The other thing we that I've done is that you have to be careful because people's rationalizations, it's more acceptable to give an economic rationalization. So there's a question that I did, just a small little pilot survey, and I asked people how important in Britain, white British Brexiteers, how important is council housing is, and pressure on council housing is a problem in Britain. You get about a 47 out of 100. You ask how important, all you have to do is insert immigrants putting pressure on council housing. How, how important a problem is that? It's 72 out of 100. So, <clears throat> which doesn't make any sense because if you're worried about pressure on council housing, immigrants putting pressure on council housing has to be a subset of that and should be less important. But I think what's going on is that, that the attitude to immigration is before. It's kind of almost subconscious and then it's rationalized in some way. So you're opposed to immigration, you see this question on council housing, and then you do. And so, so I guess my view is still, uh, I'm still of the view that just because someone says it's all about pressure on services or economic inequality, I'm skeptical that's the driver. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that when we juxtapose economy and culture, the problem that we're encountering is the is the false assumption that if economy is the driver, then we should be seeing it. We should be seeing uh, the very poor people or the unemployed um, voting for the far right, and and they don't always. Therefore, the economic argument is wrong. I think that is a a very very problematic way of seeing it. If the economy plays a role in how people vote. That is goes way, way beyond than making an assumption that, oh, look, the really poor people should be voting for the far right and they're not, and then that's fine. It could have multiple types of mechanisms. So, for example, um, relative deprivation, and I know you would say this is unfalsifiable, but the, 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 the point is, I think, that different economic conditions affect different people with different positions in the labour market differently. And it affects insiders and labor market insiders and labor market outsiders very differently. And also it affects their perceptions. And so it's not even about our uh, economic position only, but it's also about the immigrants' economic position, right? So to what extent are people competing with these immigrants? To what extent do they think they are competing with these immigrants? Are these immigrants skilled or unskilled? Are they professionals or not? To what extent do people think that the economic position of an, of an immigrant is likely to have um, an effect on society because, say, of crime, right? Or because, say, of um, for, 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 other, for other reasons. So I think that the economic explanation is far more complex. Also, people tend to look at, you know, education levels and say, oh, look, education correlates, but income doesn't. But I think income and education are very, very linked. When someone is very well educated, it must have had something to do also with the socioeconomic background. So in a way, this culture and economics sort of dichotomy is a false dichotomy, in my opinion. They both play a role and they're both very interlinked. And I think instead of arguing about which one is more prominent, I think we should really try to put our resources into understanding these mechanisms that link both Mm -hmm. of these drivers together in order to get the bigger picture. Okay, so one more question for Eric. Um, could you expound upon why relatively homogenous countries like Poland, for instance, have high levels of this kind of populism that we're seeing today? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a different mechanism to some extent taking place in the East. I mean, Rogers Brubaker has a, an article in 2017 in Ethnic and Racial Studies, which I think does a good job on this, which is he argues... And, and really, it's certain countries. It is the Visegrad countries that were near to the migration route from Syria that are in the European Union. So it is not Serbia. It is not countries that are outside the, East, the European Union. So it's a specific kind of country that seems to be responding in this way. Um, and, I th- and the way Brubaker explains it is that these are countries that were ruled by empires. Uh, Austria, Hungary... <clears throat> or um, uh, you know Austria-Hungary, then they were under the Soviet boot. Now they are sensitive to being under the European 
liberal boot and to be told what to do and how to arrange the country. So there's part part of this is kind of this resentment of foreign control. And and of course they also essentially have an ethnic I mean a lot of uh, people have an ethnic conception of the nation in these countries, mm -hmm. which which again so this is this is more of an, a, a proper definition of ethnic nationalism, whereas in the West of Europe, it's what I would call ethno-traditional nationalism. But here, there is the sense that the nation is an ethnic, organic unit, and bringing in particularly Muslim immigrants is in some way a desecration of that. So I think that, in combination with this complex of, of essentially being under an, another imperial, imperial power, those two things put together allow the populace to narrate this as the other or the elite is forcing us against our will to desecrate our nation. I mean, I think that's kind of how I would explain it. Mm -hmm. um, so immigration is part of the story, but the, the actual raw numbers are not the story. It's more this concept of, of um, sacred purity almost in the other than ethnic nationalism. So, th so there's like a fear factor about being adjacent to demographic change for countries like Poland then. Yes, and, and it's it's not just I mean I think the EU saying that they have to take refugees was mm -hmm. the was the driver. Yeah. So and even though the numbers are really small and probably as soon as these people have the freedom they're probably going to leave. But it, you know th that's not the issue. The issue is so the issue for brewmakers saying is this is largely a symbolic thing. I mean the numbers are really pretty small, but it's a symbolic thing about uh, first of all the kind of imagined purity of the nation being violated. But secondly, I think that foreign power is again dictating to us what to do. So I think it I think it has a slightly different, even though it is in a roundabout way connected to migration, I, I'd say it's a different dynamic than in the West of Europe. Mm -hmm. So now I have one more request, that we take a minute and talk about both of your academic journeys. So why did you decide to do a PhD? Um, how has your work evolved since your doctoral thesis? Um, okay, well, I'll, I guess I'll start. And I, it, a lot of it was very accidental. I, um, I came to the LSE to do a master's degree, and I, I tell the story all the time. I started out in philosophy. Uh, for I was there for maybe a few weeks. I switched to anthropology. And then after about a month, I switched to sociology. And then, I went, because I was always interested in nationalism, and then I, because I'd seen this poster that said Nationalism Seminar, and I went along, and it, it, it immediately gripped me. And it was Anthony Smith, Brendan O'Leary, James Mayo, and George Schaumler. And, and they were on stage, and they had a great discussion, and I was kind of hooked. Um, and then I did my, Anthony was good enough to take me on. And then, you know, also rooming across the hall was one of, one of the early ASIM founders, a guy called Bruce Cawthon, larger-than-life character, who was one of Anthony's early PhDs. And, and, you know, we got talking, and then I sort of, yeah, I saw Anthony, and then I was not intending to do a PhD. Wound up doing one and got wrapped up into that, and I was still, I wouldn't say until about halfway through the PhD was I thinking, okay, I'll become... An academic. I mean, it was still not something I had thought I wanted to do, because you know, no one in my family is an academic, and so on. It's kind of not something you would immediately think of doing. And then, um, but then towards the end, yeah, I just wound up, wound up doing that. And then I applied for quite a few jobs, um, and mostly got rejected, and, and went to quite a few interviews, and mostly got rejected, and finally got my first uh, post at the University of Southampton. Back in 1999, which seems a long time ago. Um, so. Okay, um, same for me actually. It was accidental as well. I, I went to the LSE to do a master's degree, the one you're doing now in comparative politics. And uh, then when I finished, I, I took a year and I was looking for jobs. And I was actually working for what was then the Department for Transport, Local Government and the Regions, so the DTLR. And then I thought, this is a bit boring, maybe I should go back to university. Uh, but similarly to where nobody from my family had a PhD, no one uh, is an academic, so it was just accidental. I thought, this sounds interesting. And then I went there and I did it. And um, here I am. So, yeah. Um, but, 
You, what else did you want to And a very good thesis, which I examined. Yes, yeah, so uh, Eric, Eric examined my thesis. I think, and my, my, my PhD thesis is actually on religion and nationalism in Greece and the Republic of Ireland. So not really on far-right parties, but I think what interested me always really was kind of why people do extreme things, why people engage in some form of political extremism, whether that is on the streets or whether that is in voting. And so I kind of, moved on from religion into the far right but nationalism is the commonalities like you know i'm really interested in this attachment to the nation and why national justifications are seem to be very resonant on people all right and so finally do you have any advice for younger or junior academics and scholars and or has anyone given advice that has stuck with you well i one thing that i would say now is it's so competitive mm -hmm. Um, that the publications that people can produce before they get their PhDs, I think, are, are in many ways worth many more, or worth much more than the publications once they're in post. I just, and by that I mean the chance of getting a decent post that's not a temporary one is mm -hmm. just so much higher if you've published before you go onto the job market. So I would, that would be my main thing, is just come, try and get something as much as you can published, even if you maybe have to delay your your PhD slightly, you know, that, that would be maybe my advice. I agree. I agree. I think publications are essential. It's a very competitive market. I would say be thick-skinned and persevere because I don't know if there's any other profession that has such criticism involved and so if you're not, you, you need to be able to take it and also take out of it what is useful but also discard what is really really harsh and negative um yeah and i would also advise younger people to take methodologies seriously precisely because publishing is not an easy task and the the, the, the more robust your research design the more chances you have in this very competitive environment and i just say on that note that, that both daphne and i have both got the theoretical and historical sociology background where we be we kind of began and we do kind of data analysis and, and sort of more quantitative stuff as well as writing theory stuff so I think it's good to have a mix of methods so I don't think either of us would be quantitative fetishists as unfortunately some people are and, and we would both value the historical sociological tradition that we came out of. So I wanted to thank you both so much for holding this discussion with me and for helping my listeners and I gain a deeper understanding of the issues we talked about today. Thank you very much. It's such a fun dialogue to have these two together. They have quite divergent views and analyses in some regards, but actually these differences are, in my view, quite complementary. It's impressive, Nick, that you managed to cover instrumentalist, ethnosymbolist, and modernist theories of nationalism in one short chat. Their discussion reminded me of Anthony Smith's 1994 work, Gastronomy or Geology. The gastronomy metaphor views nations as being composed of discrete elements whose cultures possess a variety of ingredients with different flavors and provenances. The chefs then build their recipe with ingredients that are culturally determined, such as history, symbols, myths, and languages. The geology part sees nationalists as political archaeologists who rediscover and reinterpret the communal past in order to regenerate the nation. Daphne and Eric's discussion of biology versus ideology and culture versus economy is a good reminder that sometimes it's not an either-or, but rather a more nuanced both-and. I know it can be problematic if not organized thoroughly and thoughtfully. But this acknowledgement of various theories with an open mind to mixed methods is, in my opinion, a positive exploration to consider. I laughed aloud when I heard their tellings of the journey to academia. Happening upon a nationalism poster echoes my journey as well. I was already focused on plural identities and shifting national allegiances, but stumbling upon an ASIN poster at the LSE certainly altered and shaped the trajectory of my doctoral thesis as well. It's also comforting to hear that it took Eric quite a few jobs, quite a few interviews, quite a few rejections before he landed an academic post. In fact, around 2015, he gave me great advice when I was applying for jobs that it only takes the one out of the 100 or the one out of the 200. Nobody will ask you about the other 199 or however many it may be.
Daphne's advice is so important as well. It's hard not to take criticism personally when you've put six years of yourself into a project, but she's absolutely correct. You have to be thick-skinned and persevere. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you on, on some of those first points, Kristen. I think that when approaching these topics, we do have to keep an open mind and to take note of the theoretical bases with which we're situating our analyses and, and try to at least find some solid middle ground because I think as Daphne rightly, rightfully pointed out, it's a two-way street with a, a lot of traffic either way. So scholars, researchers, and students will of course benefit from understanding the various approaches in the field and the ways in which they can and cannot mesh together in an overarching general framework. That nuanced middle ground is a bit slippery to grasp, I, I, I think, but there should be rich and innovative work in it moving forward. And as someone who's hopefully applying to their PhD in the coming year, I hope to engage with that work. And also as someone uh, applying for their PhD, I really appreciate some of the career advice that Eric and Daphne gave as well. But as our time is coming to an end, I wanted to thank you, the listeners, for making your way this far and for hopefully enjoying our discussion. It's been an illuminating hour or so, and I hope you will stick around and tune into our next ones. Remember, you can reach us on Twitter at ASIN Events, or you can reach me at Nicholas D. James, and our interviewees at EPCOFM, and at Helikiopoulou. We managed to cover a lot of ground this month, yet it seems we're really only scratching the surface. So that being said, join us next month for the next installment of the ASIN Podcast. Thank you.